America today is not the America of 50 or 100 years ago. The country has changed. How does that change affect the church, and does it change her mission in America? Join us today as we examine those questions and more with our special guest, His Excellency Charles Chaput, Archbishop of Philadelphia and author of the new book, Strangers in a Strange Land. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And uh, I'm joined in our studios by our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan. And our very special guest, uh, His Excellency, Archbishop Chaput. Uh, Archbishop, you've uh, been the Archbishop of Philadelphia now for a number of years. Right. Previously, you were in uh, uh, Denver most recently, and then before that, as in Rapid City uh, as well. Uh, you uh, have been a, um, a stalwart, uh, a, a champion of the faith. Uh, you've, you are Capuchin, which is always uh, unique as a Franciscan. We welcome you back uh, to our campus, and you've been the author of uh, Render Unto Caesar, as well as the book we'll be primarily talking about today, Strangers in a Strange Land, uh, Living the Catholic Faith in a Post-Christian Land. Uh, so it's a very challenging and uh, provocative title, uh, but welcome back to Steubenville. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about a, a new America. What, what, what today makes America a new America? Or what changes have really happened uh, in America that have really made this, this transformation, this change? Well, those of us who are older probably have a, a better sense of what I would mean by a new America yeah. because uh, things are so much different than they were when I was college student, for example, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of the... That was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm 72 years old, so oh. I, I graduated from college 50 years ago uh, wow. already, so wow. it's a long time ago. But th that was a time when um, Judeo-Christian principles were uh, at least apparently embraced by the majority of people in the culture. Right. And uh, for example, if someone was running for office back in those days for, for president, it, they wouldn't have gotten elected if they had a divorce in their background. Right. Those just simple signals like that indicate a changing perspective. Uh, as we look at uh, the candidates that were running for office this past year, uh, you know, people who talk like that or had had positions like uh, were held by them would never have been considered for office even. Yeah. So we we've, live in a, a very different time. Uh, back in in the 1950s and 60s when I was growing up. Perhaps 75% of Catholics went to church mm. on Sunday. Now in Philadelphia, it's around 20% that go every Sunday. So it's just huge differences. The uh, churches were full back in those days. Yeah. Now we're closing and merging parishes because so few, few people go to church. Uh, in Philadelphia, which is the place where I serve now, yeah. we had more than 200,000 children in our Catholic school system mm. and thousands of religious women teaching in the schools, literally thousands. Now we have 60,000 uh, students in our Catholic school system. And the population's um, and grown, too. population's grown. 
Um, and maybe we have 100 sisters, and many of them are working part-time because of their age. So just, I mean, just those kind of external things uh, have yeah. changed. Yeah. Now my worry, and that's why the book is written, is that all of the things that happen around us, it, we've been kind of like those uh, frogs that die from boiling water, but the water is heated slowly. Yes. They don't know how to get out of the pot until it's too late. And uh, whether it's too late or not, we could debate that, I guess, but things have changed very, very much. And most Catholics that I know um, are not aware in a very emotional way of the changes that have happened. Could you repeat something that you had said earlier? Because I'm not quite sure I heard you. It was so shocking. The number of Catholics who go to Mass in Philadelphia now is what? 20 percent. 20%? Mm -hmm. I mean, if that continues much longer, they won't need you. Well, I, I think, I they think they'll still need They you. won't need me, but they'll need a bishop. <laughs> they'll need them more than ever. <laughs> they just won't but, recognize their... But, but you know, yeah. you are so right. I mean, you look at the, the churches were full, the families were intact. I right. mean, you had so many cultural shifts. What really pushed us in this direction? What, or what allowed this to happen? What, this is a lot of change. Uh, it's a lot of change, and there are many reasons for it. And uh, I think it's important to notice that it began about 50 or 60 years ago. It didn't begin 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The numbers have been dwindling since those days that I, I mentioned. Uh, so the, the forces for secularization have been um, pretty active in our country since the end of the Second World War, I mm. think. Mm. There was a recommitment to um, the faith and, and the church because of the war. You know, a right. number of people coming back from war, entering monasteries and religious life and seminaries was rather extraordinary, much like what happened after the 9-11 incident, you know, mm -hmm. the churches were full maybe for right. two months or three months. Yeah. But after that, there's been this gradual decrease and it hit the Protestant communities in a stronger way earlier than ours. You know, yeah. they, their numbers are much less than ours, uh, the mainline Protestant groups anyway. Uh, it would take a long time to go into all the reasons sure, for it. Sure, but sure. I, I think uh, Pope Benedict <clears throat> had put his finger up on hmm. the Malays when he cited the phenomenon of a silent apostasy. Yes. That people are leaving and nobody notices or much cares. Mm -hmm. uh, it reminds me of, of something uh, the critic and educator Albert J. Nock had said about a century ago. He, he was asking the question, how might a civilization know if it slips into a dark age? And his answer was, all the lights have gone out, but nobody notices. Mm -hmm. It's dark. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, and that's doubly dismaying. Yes, it is. You have your work cut out. Well, we do. And it's not just the That's work right. of bishops, it's the work of the right. whole church. That's true. And yeah. today, even more than before, you know, I think one of the, the blessings of our time, if you consider uh, it a, it's a blessing in itself, but is that lay people have to assume their pro proper right. role right. in the church. They have to be co-responsible for the gospel. They can't leave that in the hands of the clergy. I was at a conference recently where someone said that the first pastors of children our parents and those of us who are pastors in another sense yeah. are tools that parents can use to help the formation of their kids. But unless the parents are involved, you know, all this other stuff, including Catholic schools, are going to be useless. Yeah, I mean, John Paul, who did something back in the 80s and 90s in his vigor, something like a rollback, not only worldwide, but here in America with Reagan there as president too. But he speaks of parents, he spoke of parents as the primary evangelizers, yes. you know. But how can they function if they don't? if they're not evangelized themselves. Or if they didn't even know that they're right, the primary. Right. That's right, yeah. Yes. You know, I, I'm reminded of uh, Israel in exile because that's where I think yeah. Catholic Christians find themselves today. And I'm also thinking of the prophet Jeremiah who in the latter chapters, you know, this is where we get the term of Jeremiah, a sermon that is a haranguing 
prognosis of gloom and doom, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the last several chapters of Jeremiah are that way, not because of Israel's exile, but because Jeremiah was upset that the Israelites didn't know they were in exile. Yes, yeah. You know, that he was trying to like, you know, the lights are off and you don't even notice. You know, <laughs> That's so you're true. in exile and you don't care. You know, you don't even you, you don't even long for the days where you could go to the you know the Jerusalem temple. And I, I do think that that describes things today. But there's another layer too that I, I observe, and that is people don't notice the change. I mean, uh, when you talk to people, even our age, who are progressive, they look back 50 years and they don't want to even look back 50 years. Because, I mean, it's like the Ice Age. Yeah. It's something that was so regressive. By looking back, you might start hankering, you know. And so th the only reason you look back is just to kind of criticize that sort of thing. And mm. I thought just, it's odd that traditional morality is odd. Yeah, yeah. It, it might be self-evident uh, in some ways, but, but all of these changes, this new America presents a lot of challenges to the church uh, yeah. as an institution, to Catholics individually. Um, what are some of those challenges that are now at our doorstep, that are right here in front of us today? Well, uh, what's our role in terms of the broader society? What are yeah. we supposed to do? How do we fit in? There's a lot of talk today about the Benedict option, you know, mm -hmm. going back to the time of St. Benedict and forming communities separate from the rest of the environment and uh, in order to educate your children and yeah. live peacefully in the midst of all this <laughs> turmoil. Um, so that's an option people look at, but I personally have not yet uh, gone that direction because it seems to me that we need to render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar and that is a responsible role in the world around us. I think we need to be actively engaged. Uh, you know, the, the United States uh, has the same constitution, but people don't mean the same thing by the words when they talk about the constitution as they meant 50 years ago. I, mean, it, it's, it, it, I don't know how many young people are committed to democracy. Yeah, it's a big shift. And the wealthy people are committed to the rule of the elite. Right. Well, well Archbishop, you make the point uh, in your book uh, uh, by citing Augustine, and I think that's the option that you might prefer. You would have us it, it would. exercise that. We are in the world. We can't really take leave of it. And, right. and even a profane state uh, uh, provides peace, and we have an obligation to uphold that state, uh, the, the republic, however corrupt, however much it appears to be in a state of advanced decomposition, and yes. we can smell the carcass. We still have an obligation uh, to stay put and do the best we can, light the candle instead of cursing all that darkness. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think your point is well taken that we can't just insist that the bishops uh, spearhead the, the renewal. I mean, just, just as war is too important to be left to the generals, evangelization is much too important uh, to say only priests and bishops uh, uh, can do this. Lay people uh, have maybe the chief responsibility in, do. in terms of renewing the temporal order. And we've got to take up our charge. That's right. you know, Scott knows the Bible better than I do, but if you look at the Acts of the Apostles, uh, it's a combination of the work of Paul, who was an apostle, yep. and uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were obviously lay missionaries. They were both equally evangelists. They didn't seem to turn that over to Paul. They assumed their proper responsibility. And Paul actually made tents with them, I guess, as part of his, uh, his own livelihood. Uh, and I think that is the model for the church today. This notion of lay people being co-responsible for the church has its origin in the scriptures and the early history of the church. It's not something new. It's something newly rediscovered uh, for us. But uh, there no longer are lay people 
co-workers with the bishops. They are co-responsible for the church. And, mm, right. and bishops need to acknowledge that, priests need to acknowledge that, and then most of all, lay people need to acknowledge it, because lay people tend to be the ones who, who generally want to clericalize the church today, give it over to the priests yeah. and the bishops. It's easier. It's easier to turn it back. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, with all these challenges coming, I mean, there's no question we have to do something different. That's you right. know, the, the, the church, which is the whole body of Christ, really needs to yeah. step up our game. <laughs> but you know, know one that. could argue that uh, the 800-pound gorilla in, in the middle of the living room is this datum uh, you cite, only 20% go to Mass. Mm. I mean, if the Eucharist is at the center of one's life, the center of the universe, and 80% don't think they need to be nourished, what are we looking at? Mass apostasy. I mean, the triumph of mediocrity. I mean, people who are always at their best and they don't need the body of Christ uh, to empower them. That, that is terribly sad. I mean, how do we overcome that? Well, I, I think the only way we overcome it is families who are committed to passing on the faith to their children. Uh, you know, there are wonderful places like Franciscan University where some, some people come here who don't have a deep religious commitment and develop one. And I think that's wonderful. You see signs of that everywhere in the country, perhaps around the world, the good th things that this university's done and continues to do. But for the m most people won't come to school here. Most people will go to a secular university, the place where they're going to receive uh, their evangelization, which is much more important than catechesis, is mom from mom and dad. That's right. yeah. By mom and dad's example, before their words, but also their words. Yeah. Yeah. The classical approach of the lay apostolate, though, has, in a sense, flourished not just in spite of everything, but because of everything. You know, yeah. I think of the legacy that you left in Denver as the shepherd there, and how the Augustine Institute was established for the new evangelization with Tim Gray and Ted Sri, who are graduates of, of this school. And likewise, uh, even more perhaps, Focus, which is now on, uh, I was doing summer training for over 500 Focus missionaries. Mm -hmm. And even though it was conceived here, it was really birthed out there. And there are many, many other organizations and apostolates out in Denver and throughout yeah. the country. I mean, when I came into the Catholic Church more than three decades ago, I, uh, it, was a different, it was a different landscape. Mm -hmm. um, lay apostolates were present, but apart from Catholic Answers, and EWTN was just getting started. But I mean, now there are just dozens, if not hundreds. And yeah. so, you know, it, it's not just that the 80% represent apostasy, it's that the 20% really need to become our focus to make sure that they're really catechized, that yes. they're really mobilized and equipped yeah. to take the grace of the Eucharist that they receive and reach the 80% and beyond the 80%. I mean, it's so easy for me to wring my hands and give in to negativity. It's a daily habit for me, yeah. you know. Yeah. At the same time, there's an awakening that has to take place through prayer, as well as through fellowship and through the Eucharist itself, it's yeah. Jesus. You know, yeah. knowing the facts uh, are, is not uh, negative, although the facts right. are negative. So these kind of, uh, you know, this getting angry and talking about how bad things are can be a very good thing if it wakes, wakes us up to right. the reality. Right. Right. Yeah. And knowing the truth is always good news because yeah. it gives you a platform on which to stand and begin right. the work. Yeah, and in and, and the next segment, I want you to go into some of the lessons we can learn from the past that, that will help us with today. Uh, stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. There are many ways to evangelize. Now, I'm a co-producer with NewCatholicGeneration.com, and our basic goal is to reach teens where they're at in their homes through the internet. There's a lot of peer pressure at their schools and a lot of things telling them to 
not talk about their faith and not be enthused about it. So for us to be able to reach them through that and say, no, it's not weird to be Catholics. It's a really wonderful thing and you should share that with others is a beautiful thing. I believe faith is a very personal thing and that's why I believe that online representation is so important. It shows how people have taken these experiences in their own lives and actually built them into the truths of the faith and made the faith their own. And I think that's vital to Catholic evangelization today. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about being strangers in a strange land with Archbishop Chaput. Um, so you've kind of laid out a little picture of how America has changed pretty drastically in the last 50 plus years. And, but as we look at this as a church, the church is bigger than America. The church has lasted uh, through uh, empires have come and gone. Um, when you look back at the history of the church, um, is this an unprecedented time for us? Is there anything we can learn from the past uh, in the church's experience? Well, I think this is an unprecedented time for us, yes. meaning the people who've been alive for the last 50 to 70 years, um, but it isn't for the church. You know, we, the first 300 years of the church, were, we had a church without buildings, mm. and today in places like Philadelphia, the church sometimes defines itself by its buildings. You know, in the past, it was, you had to risk your life to be a Christian. Now, um, you know, it's, you're, you're considered primitive in some places if you're a Christian, but <laughs> right. our lives in the United States are not at risk yet. And right. um, I don't think they will be for the foreseeable future. Right. But uh, things have changed a whole lot and uh, we have to get rid of our attachments to our memories in order to, to move into the future because mm -hmm. nostalgia can help us define the church in a way that's not useful. For example, you know, we have huge numbers of large churches in Philadelphia, and because of that, we're spending much of our financial resources on keeping those buildings open, and we're not putting those resources into active programs of evangelization. Mm. And there's no way that's going to change in the near future. We, we have to be willing to give up our buildings, actually. Not completely, wow. but move into maybe smaller buildings and, and try things in a different kind of way. Unless we have the imagination to do that unless we actually redefine our understanding of the church in a way that fits the gospel picture of a community of people who are pilgrims on the way to the kingdom of heaven. And we'll, we'll use buildings as necessary, but we'll also <laughs> be free to move in other directions in order that Christ be praised and be accepted as Lord and Savior in our lives. I, I hope that we'll be able to get that kind of freedom, but it's hard. And it's hard for bishops who are inherently conservative. You know, we are we are responsible for the, the patrimony of the church. Yes. Uh, it's hard for us to take leadership when our people would stand in the way of that. For example, if you want to encourage a parish to envision itself in a new way and the people want it to be just the way it was, mm -hmm. it, it just leads to paralysis actually. You know, at one level, yeah. it's totally understandable that people react sure. to the closing of churches or the sale of buildings because the human attachments, the, the, the sentimental, right. but also the sacramental, I mean, the baptisms, the weddings, the confirmations, all of those things that take place. On the other hand, 
it's sort of a wake-up call because once you realize that the church is being sold because it's empty, that's a challenge for lay people to take responsibility for what has happened. And they don't want to. Nobody yeah, does. You know? right. I mean, contraception and you know, just giving in to the secularization of culture at countless layers. You know, that's the sort of thing where lay people understandably are going to be offended, but hopefully they're going to be converted because they're going to recognize we're going to lose more if we don't really take action. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, it's, it seems to me that the business about memory is not terribly important anymore because if you've got only about 20% showing up, then they scarcely uh, miss what might be bulldozed uh, uh, away. Uh, there's no nostalgic itch to return to a past that what? they never experienced. It's, you know, it's amazing how many people place. who don't go to church have that nostalgia. That's true. It's it's right. Right. The, one, the ones oh, who, yeah. who stand up and are the loudest when you talk about merging parishes right. are the people who don't go to church. Yeah. The cultural capital. I know you saw that in the yeah. yeah. Right. So they do still have a, but, but they don't long for Jesus. Right. They long yeah. for the building and yeah, for the, the memories the glory of their childhood. Days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the social and political influence the church wielded oh. that those buildings symbolized. Yeah, well, I, I, I love the example. It just reminded me, being here in Steubenville, in, in a kind of a, um, an old steel mill town, and, uh, you know, we, there's many who long for the past where the steel mills and the coal mines and everything were flourishing in the area. Right. But our future doesn't necessarily reside in our past. Mm -hmm. um, it resides with taking what we have today and moving forward. And I'm going to use you as a, a quote, you know, we evangelize at all times and use buildings if necessary. You know, right. right. That's, the, yeah. that's the quote. So uh, as we look at these challenges, of, of overcoming some things that are really uh, unessential, uh, essentially unessential. Um, what from our church's history uh, do you draw on? I mean, is that, is that, are you drawing that from history as we look at the, the, the church that had no buildings in the past? Um, are there other things that we can look at that the past can teach us how to respond to these challenges and, and deal with this in a very uh, substantial way? Because these are real challenges and the church has dealt with different things. It's unprecedented for our generation. Uh, but knowing church history does give us consolation because it, you can find many periods where the church had these same kind of crisis of culture. Um, even St. Augustine, at the end of his life, saw what he knew as, as reality disappear yeah. as the Roman Empire was collapsing around him. Yeah. But he was able to, to uh, look at that with a certain kind of peace and joy in his life because he knew that Jesus was Lord of history. Yeah. And uh, despite what's happening around us, we can be confident of his presence in, in our own future. So history does help us to know that. But I, you know, personally, I'm too old to know what the future is going to look like. I think that has to be in the hands of younger Catholics mm. who uh, actually have the mindset of younger people in our culture. And when they have that mindset and also the faith of the church, yeah. I think they can help us map the future. Because I think the, the future is going to be very different than the present. Right. Yeah. You know, I think there's an ironic move that I didn't see coming in young Catholics, at least many of the young Catholics. I. I meet here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, but everywhere else as well. And that is they're rising up and reappropriating uh, tradition. Yeah. And they're, it's not a traditionalist reaction as you find in some pockets, but they're sort of rediscovering chant or they're rediscovering uh, images and novenas. But I think it, even, it goes deeper, at least it's going deeper now. Uh, and, I, and I think they're also going to find themselves backing into a position where they're going to speak out in defense of buildings. Yeah. Not because we need buildings, but because buildings can evangelize. You know, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. Well, use buildings when necessary, but just like words, buildings are necessary. Yes. 
And buildings with the stained glass, buildings with the statues, building, I mean, you, you have a sacramental religion that requires an architectural expression. But what we don't need is a hundred of them when only four or five are really used. Yeah. But let's make sure that the four or five that are done are done beautifully. Yeah. So that when people come, they recognize not just a cultural oasis, but nothing less than heaven and earth. Yeah, I, it, it's yeah, a kind of dangerous idealism to think otherwise because we are in the body, we're in history, yeah. we're in time, uh, and uh, we're immersed uh, in things, stuff, uh, not just words, but, but sacrament, uh, and the hallowed spaces uh, that people habituate uh, and, and have done so for generations bespeaks, uh, I think, uh, a certain memory that's alive. Mm. I mean, that was the task that I think Solzhenitsyn gave himself, to revive the Russian memory, which had been amputated after 70 years of Soviet communism. We don't face that kind of forgetfulness, that kind of amnesia, but there is a certain forgetfulness that, that maybe uh, we can uh, attempt to uh, overcome. Yeah. But we, ask, we have to be careful we don't fall into nostalgia. Yes. I think some of the young people you speak about are living in, in, uh, with nostalgia in some sense because uh, how are they ever going to be able to even build a church in the future if they don't give money to the church? That's right. And they yeah. don't give money to the church. Even very committed young people, mm. they don't even go to the same parish every Sunday. See, we're, we're living in a different reality where people are much more mobile. Our concept parishes, you know, yeah. are built out of a past when there wasn't so much mobility. What do we do about the future when people don't identify with the parish? How do you ever get the resources to build something beautiful? The reason we have these ugly churches that look like theaters is because they're so much cheaper to build. That's right. Right. You can build one for $5 million. Yeah. If you build a beautiful cathedral, it's gonna cost you 20. Yeah. So yeah. they settle for the five because that's all the resources they have. Now the church isn't only about resources, but I think you're right. I mean, I, I hate these, these ugly churches. I love the beautiful ones. Yeah. And that we have to preserve the ones that are built so that they don't disappear. But we have to begin thinking even beyond the notion of parish because young people don't stay put. And parishes are built on the concept of this group of people. Well, in, in some working. respects, technology has become the great enemy because uh, living in cyberspace, you don't have a sense of That's place. Right. You don't belong anywhere. That's right. uh, you're virtually everywhere. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is deplorable. Yeah, yeah. But it, nonetheless, it's real, though. So it's they, real. it may be the great enemy, we but have to reckon they're with not the stepping out of that world into a world of stability, though. They're yeah. not. Right. Well, uh, you, you mentioned St. Augustine earlier. I want to go back to him. If you could just kind of unpack a little bit more. He, he talked a lot about the city of God and the city of man. Uh, what does St. Augustine have to share? What wisdom can he bring, particularly in the, the light with our challenges today? You know, he lived in, a, in an age when, uh, you know, the church was beginning to grow and the Roman Empire had been converted of sorts. So yeah. uh, he spoke about the, the, the peace that was given to the church by the Roman Empire as a space where the church could do its thing hmm. and, uh, and grow. Um, but he also made it very clear in his writings that we have to be careful not to be caught up in that world of peace because it could disappear very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so he, he taught us to, to, to live with the wheat and the, the weeds at the same time, yeah. which is very important for us to do. I say, yeah. Pope Francis is speaking about this all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, smell like the sheep being out there. Well, right? not only smell, but he says that we need to also uh, make sure that we don't, uh, we're not hostile towards those who don't agree with us, gotcha. that we actually love them and they know that we love them. Yes. And yes. you know, so that we, we, we can't be just negative about the world in which we live. 
But we have to be cautious because it can it can sneak into our way of thinking. And but the world in which we live is negative towards the faith that we believe. You know, when you mentioned Solzhenitsyn, you know, he took upon himself the task of sort of holding fast to the memory of the mm. people. But he also reflected upon the pre-Bolshevik days when the elders in his village would say, men have forgotten God, which happened before the communists right. took over. And I think we're in that interim position right now where men have either forgotten God or actually they remember God, but they're suppressing that memory. It isn't a passive, neutral enterprise. It really is active and publicly so. Uh, and ironically, they, they, they sort of weaponize toleration and target Islamophobes and all of that. But in the process, we've got to figure out, you know, how to balance the, you know, we don't want to give into the temptation to nostalgia. But on the other hand, we don't want to let go of a patrimony. No, that's right. Because this represents the faith of our grandparents, our parents, and it goes back even further. And at the same time, it's a, it's a, a beckoning. It's a vocation for us, not just to pay for the buildings. You know, I have a really loose grip on those. But I think at the same time, we've got to tighten our grip on the faith that built those so that whatever it is we do, we, 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 we instill in those kids through re-evangelization. You've got to take the cross up. You've also got to go to the same parish. You've got to go to Mass every week. You've got to pay well, going to, be a part to really of the family, express this. The family of God. There is yeah. a in tangible a way, reality. Uh, Archbishop, this is uh, your job description. You, you uh, recount the friend who told you when you were first ordained as a bishop that you had a twofold uh, function. Uh, you are to be a radical, uh, evangelize, live the gospel, imitate Jesus, but also you are a museum curator. You have to preserve the past mm -hmm. so that it can be imparted to the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to preserve buildings. That's pretty practical stuff. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, you have to commune with Christ. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's our job description. That's true. Know? That's true. Yeah. Um, something you've mentioned before is uh, Pope Francis has, has often cited the book, The Lord of the World. I'm just starting to read that myself. But, um, you know, what, what does a book a hundred plus years ago have to say to us today, and why does the Pope kind of mention it a couple times? Wait, I read it when I was a, I read the book when I was a kid and, and liked it. I've tried to read it. I've tried to read it twice since Pope Francis became Pope and spoke about it, and I don't like it. <laughs> and it's hard to read because it's it an old style, yes. you know. Right. But it, it, what's what was striking about it when I was a young people living in a kind of a naive world about the church is going to continue to grow and. Especially after Vatican II, we thought that once, once we smile at the world, it's going to smile back at us. Yeah. Uh, it was bringing this notion of the Antichrist yeah. into my awareness that uh, mm -hmm. even people who are perceived by the broader culture as great leaders, mm -hmm. uh, saviors for the future, <clears throat> can really be the presence of evil. And we That's have, what it is. It's a conflict of and the Antichrist. Actually, Jesus warned us about that. The scriptures mm -hmm. warned us about that. So I think it's important for us always to have one eye on the world around us, uh, awareness of the devil and of evil. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the Apostle John, he's pretty explicit about the Antichrist. Anyone who denies the Incarnation yes. uh, is the Antichrist. I mean, that would include great numbers of people who only go to Mass 20% uh, of the time. That's right. Uh, he's in our midst. Yeah. Enemies of the Cross of Christ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Amen. Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. We just teach a very simple three-pronged approach that actually Jesus gave us in Luke 10. In that gospel, he said, first go out and proclaim peace, second, eat what's set before you, and third, and then when the ground is laid, proclaim the gospel. 
So every one of us, as Pope Francis has asked us to be missionary disciples, can proclaim peace. And secondly, the acceptance, eat what's set before you, accept those people that are before you and love them. And thirdly, when that relationship of friendship and trust is built, then I think the ground is fertile for the gospel. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, we're recording this right now in our communication arts studio. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment. Um, our, our regular panelists, our faculty here at Franciscan University. Um, Archbishop Sheffield, we, we have talked about the new America. We've talked about some that we can learn from the past. That this isn't new for the church as a whole, uh, but there is a new path we're carving out today. Uh, but there remains a lot of challenges that we have in front of us. When you think about the present moment, uh, the challenges we're facing, what are other challenges that you even as, as a shepherd uh, look at the, the challenge to evangelize in this culture, even the church institutionally? Are there things that are still impediments uh, to us doing the work of the gospel? Well, I think there are, there are new impediments uh, for the church now. Uh, I think there's this new confusion created by gender theory that uh, is crippling uh, us in so many ways because we're even reflecting on Catholic schools. How can we respond to this issue? And there are many people, many pastors, many of our school people who are sympathetic with those uh, tendencies in some way. Uh, you know, in, in my own diocese, we have situations where parents have asked for uh, the school to allow someone who's, who is confused to start wearing the uniform of the other gender oh, wow. and also to be called by a new name. Oh my goodness. And we find that there are people in the school uh, system, administration, who are sympathetic with that, and even pastors. Um, it's because we live in a world where that's been an issue, because it's become a major issue yeah. for us. Yeah, and if we cease to remain consistent yeah. and, and, and courageous in our identity and who we, just simply who we are, being who we're called right. to be. Yeah, how can you know it? what to do until you first know who you are? The well, question of identity, right. being, that determines doing. And it's also important for us not to be reactive, where right. we just presume, and we need to be sympathetic with the parent and the child and not yeah. just from a distance make decisions. Right. Right. But we, we know from the studies that are done that it's very imprudent to make decisions of those kinds when people are very young. Yes. And yeah. much of this passes with, with time. Right. But there's an impatience in our culture that doesn't allow us to take our time. So the way I'm handling it is I'm certainly we're not letting anyone do that kind of thing. And we're discouraging parents from taking, making decisions where they prematurely support a person who is in some kind of tr transitional way confused. Um, whether or not we're gonna be able to find a balance, I don't know yet. But those kind of things are they're just pouring into the life of the, of the parishes. And you know, laws of the, the government around things like uh, well, the HHS um, right, requirements, yes. the mandates, um, but also, you know, labor relations. Do we, 
if someone is in a gay marriage, do we fire them or do we let them stay on a job? Right, right. Uh, those kind of things are daily, act daily concerns for me yeah. and my responsibility it, as a bishop. It's the balancing of the truth and the love. Truth yes. can yeah. be used as a weapon uh, if, if alone, but, but love without truth is sentimentality. I think you've said it similar. It's true. To, you know, and, but, uh, but if we spend all our time on those kind of issues, we spend very little time evangelizing. We're, right. we're just yeah. protecting ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it's a distraction. Matters, these are matters that really take your breath away. They take your breath away and Questions your time. that never accosted our ancestors. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, no. You know, my wife points out that the more TV or the internet shows babies, those are the most forceful counter-arguments, she yeah. says. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm convinced that she's yeah. right. She's right. Because intuitively, people look at that and recognize that there's something sacramental about love, even in the natural order. You know, that maybe I've strayed a long time, you know, a long way since my baby photos, mm -hmm. but there was something really beautiful and revealing about that. But at the same time, it's, it's within the, the, the spiritual culture of, of Christianity, too. I was out at Wheaton a few years ago at, this, at the Billy Graham Center, where I was participating in a colloquium with several of the most dynamic emergent church leaders who are independent, non-denominational, but also non-buildings. They, they insist upon going to the bars or the parlors to, to evangelize. You know. And the one pastor said, you know, bread and wine, why not pizza and beer? And it took me an hour to recover. You know, but I thought, you know, that's like taking transgender theory and applying it to Eucharistic yes. mystery. You know? uh, I just thought, you know, I, I've got to not yell and scream and hit this guy. Yeah, <laughs> it took me an hour to get back. And then we had a great conversation over lunch. But I don't think I got him even two steps beyond that. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. It's a confusing time. When you separate yourself from the vine, but things you, become think, open. Yeah, that's right. yeah, your wife has really hit upon something profound. I mean, as, as Kimberly often Always does. does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the best argument against abortion is a baby. That's right. That's right. I that's mean, right. I think of Mother Teresa holding up that child and saying, look, Mr. Muggeridge, this baby is alive. That's and right. that pretty much catalyzed his conversion. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as, we, as we look at uh, the church in America, all the challenges, uh, how do we respond? Has the mission of the church changed uh, in America? Well, we respond on all different levels. I think uh, it's important for bishops and religious orders who have seminaries to make sure that the seminary is preparing priests for the, mm. the new America so and not for a past uh, uh, way of being a priest. Because if, you're, if you understand the priesthood is primarily organizing a good set of buildings and running an institution is quite different than seeing it as a, uh, a field of the new evangelization. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, many of our young men in the seminary would rather have the peaceful life of being a old-fashioned pastor yeah. than yeah. The, new kind of, of sorts. the new kind of life that they're going to be facing as priests. And it's going to be very new, different than I've ever experienced it. I think that the, one of the biggest worries I have, you talk about what are the new worries we have, yes. is the fact that so many young people don't get married. Mm. and certainly are putting marriage off for a much later time yeah. in life. Yeah. Uh, we, they don't have confidence in marriage. And I think we should pour the resources of the church into uh, marriage yeah. and family issues today. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's show the future babies. of the church. Yes. <laughs> show them babies, but also show them happy families. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, you, you had the, the world meeting of families that you yeah. hosted. Obviously, you had a year, year and a half ago, uh, Pope Francis visiting. I mean, that was a topic. It was a real substantial moment in the life of the church right. in, in recent memory where marriage and family was front and center, it being debated both in the secular media as well as obviously in the Catholic right. uh, Catholic homes. Um, and I mean, that that is a real renewal uh, that's really needed in the church. Right, but you know, I spend quite a bit of time with young adult Catholic groups and they're not getting married. Yeah, they really yeah. aren't. They're afraid to make those commitments. So how do we help 
them make commitments. That's a big we, that is, I mean, there, that is it, the it, seminal it's question. It's an aversion, it's an allergy. The fear of commitment is so rife and so yeah. deep. You know, it, it is an alarming thing for me to see, even in our students, yeah. you know, because they'll, they'll, they'll flock to talks about theology of the body. But when it, men, when it, when it comes time to actually making that covenant commitment, you know, it's like, to okay, man up. Yeah, well, you know, I've got to keep my options open. But, you know, yeah. often the, the enemy of myth is very often circumstance. And when two people fall headlong in love, they want to make a commitment and they want it to be forever. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, youth wasn't made for pleasure, but for heroism. Mm -hmm. uh, and fidelity is heroic. And the church has to hold the line uh, on the uh, integrity and sanctity of the sacrament. We can't cut corners. We can't settle for less. We can't say, well, it's an ideal that men and women seldom realize, but uh, we'll accommodate you. Well, that, the church that is, can't do that. But that's sneaking into the church, that notion yeah. that marriage, it is permanent faithful marriage is an ideal. That's right. Rather than a reality to embrace, be embraced by the church. And we just have to be resistant to that's that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and as you look at the secular cultural political forces that are waging against marriage uh, and uh, the church and a Catholic marriage doesn't look that different in sociological terms than a secular uh, marriage, you know, that's a justice of the peace marriage. I mean, I, I think, and you, you've kind of alluded to this in the past, I mean, I think we need to make Catholic marriage, sacramental marriage, look very different. And uh, right. I, I'm, I'm one of the few bishops, I think a few, who favor us not no longer doing civil getting marriage, getting out of the marriage business and, and reserving our, our witness of marriage to the, the sacrament and making it very clear that this isn't what society means by marriage. That's a bold statement. It's very bold, it, but it, we live in a, in a new age, a new world, and maybe we need a new approach to marriage too on that level. Yeah. I think yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a new approach and yet it's a very old approach too, because I mean, when we explain marriage and when we hear them explain marriage, I think that's the rhetorical response that that's not what we mean by marriage. We're not just talking about different forms of legislation. Yes. We're just talking about entirely different definitions of marriage. And so it isn't just the natural law approach that we uphold. Above all, it's the sacramentality of marriage. You know, and that sign value of Christ in the church isn't ancillary. It's not just something that we attach at the end to kind of catechize. Yeah. It is at the very heart of it, you know. And, I do think clergy and laity have got to come together and forge partnerships. And I mean, that, that sounds nice, but in practice, it's very hard. You know, I'm reminded of a friend who did, who did his dissertation on the 13th century, where Pope Innocent III, who sort of permitted Francis and mm -hmm. Dominic to do the mendicant thing, and King Louis IX, the only Louis who's a saint, um, he wrote a book called Before Church and State, because everybody speaks of church and state back then, but when he went back to the primary sources, Nowhere do you have church and state because King Louis thought of himself not as state. He was baptized, confirmed, and married in the church. He thought of himself as laity, and he recognized that Pope Innocent is clergy. It's not church and state, it's church and church. And together, the clergy and the laity formed a kind of sacramental organism. Yeah. That it, and again, it's not nostalgia, it's metaphysical reality. It's the sacramental objectivity of who we are and what we do. And evangelization is just waking up and recognizing these mysteries are more real than anybody's presidency. Yeah, yeah. Well, tipping off of that, why is retreating from the public square not an option for Christians? I mean, that's, that's, that's ultimately, you're talking about forging an, an alliance, church and church together, laity and, 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 and religious uh, together. Uh, but, but why isn't it? Why can't we just abandon the world? Why is that not an option well, for Christians? Well, 
first of all, you know, I don't want to ban on the world and I'm not in favor of doing that, but I think we need to have techniques that do that somewhat. For example, homeschooling is basically fleeing the public school system sure. and maybe even fleeing what they think is an inadequate Catholic school system. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think parents who are the first educators of children should be the ones who make that decision. And if they're doing it in order to really evangelize their children and catechize them well, I think it's we should do all we can as a church to support them. I think our Catholic schools offices have to understand that the family can be a school and they ought to support the family in their education purposes. So I'm not entirely in, in, in favor of just staying where we are. Right. I think we need to, we need to have our Strategic parishes. Strategic withdrawals. Our, our <laughs> parishes need to be more like that. I think we need to have small groups where couples really do come together and talk yes. apart from Sunday where they support one another. Mm -hmm. We need Catholic institutions like Steubenville which are different from ordinary institutions. So sure. there's, a, there's an element of withdrawal that I think is very important but it's in, in order to go back and to evangelize and to... With a purpose. It, it's, it's tempting, I think, to invoke the Benedict option in a kind of facile way and say, well, you've got to physically remove yourself, move uh, to some uh, a pumpkin patch yeah. uh, uh, on the outskirts of, of Oklahoma City uh, and raise your kids there. I don't think that that's uh, what, what Benedict had in mind, or certainly not Augustine. You bloom where you're planted. What, yeah. what Eric Gill called the cell of good living mm. in the chaos of, of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that might require greater reserves of heroism because it's a spiritual detachment from the corrupt city. But you're not unplugged from that city. You recognize that it does have certain essential services, mm -hmm. even the post office. You know, they get the mail delivered. Not well, but I can't <laughs> do it. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, standing army, they keep the roads running. Yeah. So, I mean, you count on those, those services. Yes. But you're not really enamored of that city. You're in the world, but you're certainly not of it. And if we don't enter into leadership in that part of the world, it's going to get worse because that right. vacuum will be filled with people who truly see themselves as our enemies and who oppose us. Yeah, I, I, wanna, I wanna emphasize that point of getting involved in the world in terms of leadership. Yeah. You ran for city council yeah. here in Steubenville. My wife is now the city councilwoman at large. And I mean, she's not the president, she's not the senator, but I mean, what she's doing is what she can do. Locally, sure. she's generating so much positive energy. Yeah. And she's not doing it, and she happens to be a Catholic. I mean, it really is her Catholic faith that is the wellspring of so much of the vision. Yeah. And she's working with non-Catholics, non-Christians, but I would say the more Catholics can get over that sort of hankering to kind of retreat and enter into the local life of their That's own right. community, I think the more they're gonna be amazed by the grace. And I think just that speaking to that point, people have to love, have a certain real love for this world, to love for the people, not, right. not, not, the, the world as it's corrupt and falling apart, but for the people, for the city, for the home where you live, for the community, for your school boards, for your Catholic schools, to really love them yeah. and get involved and not abandon them, but then start them in the right direction because we have the plan for renewal of our world. Uh, that's, that's the exciting part. We've got a gospel message that everybody would want to draw into and it will restore cities and towns and communities. Yeah. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Oftentimes, especially nowadays in the 21st century, we've got information bombarded to us from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed. You know, the first thing we do is check our phones oftentimes in the morning. And oftentimes something that can really help with that is to put the phone aside for the first 10 or 15 minutes or so after you wake up and really focus your thoughts 
on what do you want to accomplish today? How can it help you grow in your faith life? How can you live out a Catholic life and what you're doing instead of immediately being distracted by whatever social media notifications you have? So that's one way I see as a way to stay concentrated and have a daily reminder in your life. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about being strangers in a strange land with Archbishop Chaput. Uh, Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, uh, most uh, conspicuously, I, I think I, I should say that uh, we're all very grateful uh, to you, Archbishop, yes. uh, the witness uh, of your office uh, and your life. Uh, very you. impressive, very uh, edifying and convicting. I, I mean, I already feel more secure as a Catholic knowing that uh, someone like you is a shepherd, and I'm almost tempted to move to Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple of uh, random uh, thoughts, uh, images really. Uh, the image of the Blessed Mother that you cite in one of your uh, publications, uh, that 13th century manuscript illustration showing Mary punching the devil in the nose. I, I like that, and I think that's probably what you do 24-7, uh, and that's really splendid. And also, uh, Augustine, uh, this image he has of the church as a great net that is lowered into the sea, and you collect all kinds of fish but it's not our business to sort them out. That's what the angels do at the end of time, the wheat uh, from the tares. Uh, and God uh, will decide who goes where. Uh, our job is to get as many people as possible into that net. Uh, that, I think, is an, a kind of exoteric uh, notion of the church, uh, a, a sort of image of solidarity. You know, I think of uh, Bernini's uh, column. Uh, at uh, St. Peter's with the arms outstretched, Mother Church embracing all manner of, of men, a kind of promiscuity. She'll take anybody uh, and then baptize them and urge them to become saints. Uh, and finally, uh, this other image uh, from Augustine that you cite, that when people lament the times uh, in which they live, you know, the times are out of joint, as, as Hamlet says, and cursed be my fate that I was uh, charged with setting things straight. What they're really doing is lamenting themselves. We are the times, and the times are such as we are. And you'd have to be uh, blind not to acknowledge that there has been a great shift uh, in sensibility among Catholics. I mean, Catholics wanted to assimilate, they wanted to be good Americans, and they succeeded so well that they forgot their faith, the faith of the immigrants uh, who came to this country and made sacrifices to build those cathedrals that we have now left empty. We have to restore that, that elan, uh, that vigor, that faith that fired uh, the imagination of, of our ancestors. And uh, I can't think of anyone more uh, qualified, better uh, positioned to do that uh, than yourself. Mm -hmm. So get busy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Regis. Scott? I should say stay busy. <laughs> you know, I also want to echo Regis and say thank you for your leadership. Thank you for allowing our Lord and Our Lady to work through you in so many ways, not just in Philadelphia and Denver, but EWTN as well. We were there together 
for the funeral mass of Mother Angelica, and there I began to realize how much and for how long you've been involved in the network, too. Um, but the takeaway I always come to is the, um, the joy of the gospel. You know, Pope Francis's first real encyclical promulgated there, you know, after the, the Synod on the New Evangelization. It was an apostolic exhortation, technically. But the joy of the Lord is our strength, is what Nehemiah 8.10 said. And so it's an objective reality that gives us the subjective response that Paul tells the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And that isn't just giving into optimism. We've got something that Fox and Drudge don't have, not just a prognosis on a decadent, secularized, anti-Christian culture. We've got the gospel. And we've got something that is so much greater than the bad news. And I think we've got to also launch compelling arguments against all of these dangerous, disastrous trends towards secularization. But we've always got to begin and end with the good news that God loves us and showed us that by sending His Son not just to die, but to give us the spirit that draws us into nothing less than the family of God. I mean, if that doesn't get your heart beating faster, nothing will. A, a transplant might be in order. But I, I think the new evangelization is still the first order of business. It goes back to Vatican II, John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and now Pope Francis. And long after he's gone, it's still going to be the main mission. It was not just the decade of the 90s. It really is a long-term strategy. And I think that when we focus on the joy of the gospel, that's what people find irresistible. That's what is what, so irrefutable. And I think that's what you're doing. You're looking at the darkness in order to contrast the light of faith. Keep doing it. Keep holding up that light. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Archbishop, do you have any closing comments for us? I do. Uh, you know, I'm not as impressed with myself as you gentlemen are. <laughs> um, I know my sins, but I also know that I'm just uh, one cog in this wonderful plan that God has for the church. And the, you know, the uh, topic of the, the uh, talk I'm going to be giving at Steubenville <clears throat> on the day that we are having our conversation here is the role of the church in the new America. Mm. And the, the beginning point, of course, is for us to understand what we mean when we say the church. Majority of Catholics still think of the church as the bishops and the chancery or the pastor and his parish. And that's not the church. The church is all of us co-responsible for the gospel and for evangelization. And we're not going to really move into the new uh, evangelization unless parents and uh, Catholic adults understand that they are as, m as much a part of this notion of the church as those of us who are pastors. You know, the, what I've found refreshing about graduates of Franciscan University, and I've seen them everywhere I've gone, you know, I've been a bishop for nearly 30 years in South Dakota and Colorado and now in Pennsylvania. But everywhere I've gone, I've been surrounded by graduates of Franciscan University, many of them who do understand that their role in the church is not a passive role and who do assume leadership responsibility. Some of the movements you talked about in, in Denver, uh, I didn't have anything to do with them except that I got out of the way. And I encouraged those who were the leaders to take leadership and run with it. They didn't need me in order to be free to do that. It's a freedom that comes with being a baptized Christian. And we, we need to understand that, that leadership is something we share in the church. Now I have a unique uh, role because I bring to the church community the, hopefully the vision of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. And my role is to guarantee that what's being done today is faithful to the apostolic, with the apostolic teaching. But that's my unique contribution. Uh, 
I'm not the leader of the leaders. I'm simply a leader among leaders. And uh, I certainly uh, know that we're not going to be able to be successful in uh, making Jesus known everywhere unless we all get busy about doing that. Mm. But I'm deeply grateful for, to Franciscan University for providing so many people for so many years who willingly and enthusiastically embrace that leadership. And I hope that continues. Mm. Thank you, Archbishop. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's program, we have a handout. It's uh, The Mission of the Church in the New America from um, Archbishop Chaput. Um, here's the text, and we actually at faithandreason.com will actually have the full talk uh, that our Arch the Archbishop gave while he was here on our campus uh, on the topic we've been talking about today. Um, ultimately, the, the challenge is before us. You know, how do we become the saints that the church needs for this new day? And the Archbishop is a stellar example of somebody who's claimed his place. So, you know, be who you are meant to be. Be who God has called you to be, and our world will be renewed. I want to invite you uh, to be a part of Franciscan University's mission to educate, to evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples. If you want to renew the world, maybe you should consider getting a degree here on Franciscan University's campus or through our online programs. Or join us at our, our dynamic summer uh, ca uh, conferences um, or on pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world to renew your faith and be equipped for the new evangelization. And go to faithandreason.com to get all videos, as we talked about Archbishop's talk, and so many others to be equipped for the new evangelization. Um, Archbishop, would you give us a blessing? Certainly will. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He show His face to you and have mercy on you. May the Lord turn His countenance to you and give you peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.